Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relation developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. So with MLK Day right around the corner, uh, probably the day that this is broadcast, it will be Martin Luther King's birthday. And so I thought today would be a very fitting day to reach out to some people who have been pioneering in our industry. So today is the day one of that series. And uh, I hope you'll all enjoy listening to somebody that I've been wanting to talk to for quite a while. I found her online. I was able to read her Wikipedia page. I kind of looked at some of the, all the things she's doing in academia as well as in her own professional career. She is out of California. Her name is Stephanie Johnson. She is a lighting designer at Light Essence Design. Thank you so much for joining me today, Stephanie. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I was really happy to see that you have been in this industry for so long and you've been uh, not only paving the way for yourself, but you've also been able to bring a lot of people into the industry with you. I'm so interested to find out how you had the bravery to do it and uh, what you were, what sort of uh, path you took. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, as far as I can tell, your mom was very supportive of you being in the theater industry. Yes, she was. Um, my mother, before I was born, I was born in 1952. Before I was born, my mother worked in New York with the American Negro Theater. And she talked about how much she loved it. She met Har uh, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, um, and Ruby Dee, and she would tell stories. And she also during the days when you could get like a play a month, she had books and books and books of plays. Every month she got a new play from this play service. So I was completely surrounded by theater. Uh, Eugene O'Neill was one of her favorites. And I, you know, and she said theater was the best profession there was and theater people were the best people. And so of course I went off to study theater at Emerson wow. College. And of course, since I was studying theater and since it was in Boston, um, I was in New Jersey at the time, uh, my parents paid for me to go to Emerson, which was a big deal theater school. It's been there a long, long, long time. Mm -hmm. That's got to be wonderful to be able to have the parental support. A lot of people in the industry kind of had to spring it on their parents like, oh, I'm running away to join the circus and they don't fully understand it. But in your case, it sounded like you were you didn't have a choice. Yeah, I, I got conscripted into the world of the theater. <laughs> and, you know, with parents and kids, sometimes what they want for you is not what you want for yourself. And no. sometimes it is. And for me, I it, it, it fit together. It fit together. And uh, she was absolutely right. Most of my closest friends, I have friends of 50 years. Uh, we went to Emerson together, three of them. My three college roommates and I are still really close friends. 
Wow. That's great. And so how did you make it to the West Coast then? Well, Chris, I always wanted to go to college in California. My mother grew up in New England and there was no way she was going to let me come out West, the Wild West, I believe she called it. And there was no (laughs) way she was going to pay for that. I wanted to go to California Institute of the Arts and it had just opened. I think it was the second year. And so, you know, there was no way she wasn't going to pay for that. She was going to pay for me to go to school in New England to a college that had been there for a hundred years. So um, what happened was after I got out of college and graduated, I started doing freelance lighting design. I was living in Dorchester, Massachusetts and my landlord burnt my apartment down while I was working a weekend shift. Okay. And Um, I had nothing, I had nothing, I had nothing left. So not not intentionally or intentionally. Oh yeah. 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 To make money. Uh, that's was, not funny, I but was, it, I, I guess we're far enough know, along the way that we can look back on that I, and laugh now. I can laugh now, but okay. I worked the, I worked at a halfway house, so I worked from Friday night until Monday morning. And he, everybody knew my schedule, that I was not at home. And so I came home on Monday morning, and my house was burnt down. I had a few things left. I had my dog with me. And I had three cats, two died in the fire. And the other one I had kicked out because she wouldn't come in. And so I had nothing left. I went to Canada. I worked at Black Theater Canada with uh, under Vera Kudjo. And uh, from there, I I finally made it to California. That was in uh, Toronto, right? That was in Toronto. I I believe it still exists. I, I believe it still does. Yeah. That was great. I loved it. Oh, Canada is a great place to do theater. There's a, the, the audience is very open to whatever. Mm-hmm. I would I imagine it's with, very similar to New, uh, to New York and California. It is. And also I worked with um, Renee Migliaccio of Black Moon Theater. I worked in Montreal twice with him. Oh, very nice. Yeah. The last time was 2013. So instead of taking the tried and true path in New England, you decided, no, I'm going to the new, the new university in California, out to the Wild West. I'm going for it. I'm going to blaze this trail. I went to the Wild West. Right. Well, you know, she was paying. What could I say? She was paying. I went and, you know, like most 18 year olds, I would have, I would have joined the French Foreign Legion to get up out of New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) More out of uh, passion to get away than to go somewhere, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, you know, 18 year olds, I was excited. I was excited about a new life, about theater. It was the seventies, you know, mm-hmm. which came on the, on the heels of the sixties with all of its liberation movements. And it was a great time to be in college. Really great time. Mm-hmm. I feel for the kids now it's expensive and uh, strange. It is lots of change since the seventies. So I would imagine it was a, a fairly easy jump for you to to move to California and just start making connections on the liberal coast. Yeah, it was. It was, and you know, when you're young, you don't have the kind of uh, fiscal constraints and obligations. You know, you're happy to get a little piece of job and a halfway decent car and and keep it moving. You know, and uh, right. I have a funny story, and I think you're going to appreciate. This is one of three funny stories I want to tell you that have to do with uh, race and theater. 
Okay. So I, I was in my 20s. I went to Zellerbach Auditorium over here at UC Berkeley. And they have, you know, it's an auditorium. They've had Ailey. They've had all kinds of uh, roadhouse. So I walked in with my little piece of a resume. I had been out of college, I don't know, three years or something. I walk in and there's a guy sitting there, Phil Heron. I will never forget him. I walk in with my resume, which, you know, was one page. I hadn't done much. I mean, what, yeah, I hadn't done anything. I walk in, he says to me, so you're a black woman. <laughs> and, I, and I just stood there with my little piece of paper. He says, uh, you come in here and you work and nobody's going to bother you. Okay. And that is, you know, that's male talk for. I, I, get, I get what's going on. I know how the world works. It ain't going to happen here. I'm going to protect you. I mean, if he had been, you know, uh, a woman or a different kind of person, but you know, this is, this is how guys talk. Right. So that, that was when I first went in and nobody, sure enough, uh, nobody bothered me. And, you know, I worked on the crew. I, I was the only woman on the, on the electrics crew and the only black person in there. And the bookend of that story is that, um, of course I wanted to be a lighting designer. So okay. I, so, um, uh, a couple of years later, he calls me into his office. He says, uh, so you want to be a lighting designer? I go, yeah, yeah. He says, I want you out of here. <laughs> here. Here's the translation, Chris. You can do better than this. Don't get stuck being a straight stage hand. If you want to be a lighting designer, go and pursue your dream. You know, you have to translate these things. Yeah. And sure so that, enough, that was that. That takes a very humble person to know like, hey, I can't help you anymore. Like you're beyond me. Please move along. Yeah. Well, you know, he treated me like I might have been his daughter or something. You know, it's just like you can do better than this. You know, and it was a time in which the union, there were no women and no black and very, very few black people in the stagehands union. And I remember that we would have a union call at Zellerbach and the guys would get to be on the union call, make two to three times what we made hourly. And I never got a union call. And I always asked the president of our local, I said, Danny, can't you put me on? Can't you put me? Oh yeah, darling, I got you. I got you. I'll put you on. Never put me on a call. It's so hard to deny that there had to be in some racial reasoning there oh yeah I, and i can only say that because i've never walked in any place and, and for anybody to even comment like oh you're a white male wasn't prepared for that you know <laughs> that's never not once happened no 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 because being at that time and continuing being a white male designer or technician is the norm and people right. like myself and you know other women in lighting these theron musser gene rosenthal you know, there were very few women lighting designers. Very, very yeah. few. So the next story is, so, you know, he wanted me out of there. And I took it the way he meant it. I didn't think he was kicking me out. And of course, I continued to work there, but I more ardently tried to pursue my career as a lighting designer, which is what I really wanted to do. So I went over to the Paramount Theater here in Oakland. And it's another big, giant roadhouse, union house. Now, you don't have to be in the union to be a lighting designer, to be a stagehand, you had to be in the union. 
So right. um, I was working for the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame. They had an annual event. So I go in, first of all, all the guys ignored me. And they were, and I, I, I saw one of them asking, where's the lighting design? Where's the LB? Where's the LB? And finally, you know, they accepted or not accepted the fact that I was in fact the LB. And I was still in my 20s. So of course I was scared to death. There were these, you know, mean old white men looking pretty grumpy and pretty grouchy. And I had to boss them around. And I was a kid and black and a woman. So I walk in and finally when they accepted that in fact, I, the LB was there and it was me. I got, I got to work and I was, could you please? And I was very tentative. So another of uh, these guys that treat me like their sister, I'm their sister or their daughter, Thane Morris um, works a lot in film, pyrotechnics. Thane called me into his office. He said, look, if you don't get on those guys, I'm going to get on you. And I was more terrified of Thane than the other eight guys that were on the crew. So I got back out there. I was like, put that here. Do, 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 do. And butched up my act, you know? Ah, so the politeness wasn't working nearly as well as you thought. Like you had to really be, you had to take charge. I had to take charge. But, you know, again, being in my 20s, these are union guys. Yeah. And they're grumpy and grouchy. So I found a way to work around them, which was, um, you know, my dad was a psychologist. So I know how to use psychology well. And um, every time I would go in there, then there would be donuts and coffee in the office with them. And I found out which of them had kids. And I'd always ask them about their kids. And we did the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame for about four or five years. So as the years went on, and I brought my donuts and my coffee for them and asked about their kids, it got much, much better. But again, I was not in the union. Wow. Showing up being a young black female, did you feel like you had to go above and beyond what was expected to prove that you belong there? You know, I did. You know, I did. I could not make a mistake. I could not make a mistake because I, I had the whole weight of my entire race and gender. And if I screwed it up, then these guys would be quick to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a black gal once. She didn't know what she was doing. Yeah. They'd be quick to say that. But if, you know, if it was another one of them, it would be a mistake. It would be aberrant. But if I made a mistake, it was um, a condition of my gender and my race. Right. So, no, I couldn't mess it up. No, 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 no. No. I, tur I, tur I turned down. I turned down. And you'll appreciate this. So I was working in film a little bit and they approached me to be a key grip. And I don't know anything. I know basics about being a grip. I'm an electrician. Right. I set up lights. So I was approached uh, to be a key grip. And I tell you, Chris, I needed that money. I needed that money. But I knew good and well that I didn't know enough to be a key grip. And once again, the gender race card. I knew I couldn't screw it up. So one of my colleagues who knew less than I did took that gig on. Uh, a white male colleague. Because they I didn't have nearly as much at stake. Correct. Okay. And Man, that's somebody, a decision. Somebody, I've, I've, I've never had to make a decision based on those factors. 
And I'm telling you, Chris, I needed that $400. Wow. And, and, also, and also because people would cover for him. People would cover for him. Right. I remember, I remember another film gig that I had where um, there was a guy there that didn't want me to be there. He didn't want me to be there. So um, he kept tightening up the C-wrench so tight that he thought I couldn't loosen it. What he didn't know was that I had a century wrench. You remember the old ones that had the indentation in the middle? Yeah. So I could use my C-wrench from uh, theater and I would loosen it up. But he kept on and kept on and kept on. And finally, I had had about enough. And so I pretended to trip and I punched him right straight in the jaw with my C-wrench and knocked him down. And then I got very, I got very like, oh my God, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I can't. And the guys were cracking up. But that was the end of that. <laughs> Fight fire with fire right there. That's how you hey, do it. Hey, you know, what can I say? You're in your 20s. You're strong. And, you know, you just, I just punched him. I just punched him. I had had enough. I, I feel like not enough people understand that it, it doesn't take an entire crew of people to not want you to be there to make a, an uncomfortable day. It only takes one. One person can infect the whole bunch. And if you don't deal with that one person, it's only going to spread. Yeah. I punched, I punched him. And then, and that, and that was the end of that. I got to go kept on with my gig. He had been humiliated. And because I did my performance of, Oh my gosh, I tripped, I tripped. You know, I didn't just go straight and punch him. I made believe like I was falling. That's a, that's a political move right there. That that's a, that's some psychology mastermind. You bet. That was well done of that. I know I felt very good that day. I'm telling you, Chris, when I went on the film set, well, let me, let me give some props to folks. Uh, Greg Davies of DTC. Greg Davies hired me when there were very few women working in film. And Greg Davies, I had a NABIT card. And Greg Davies, when NABIT was absorbed by IATSE in San Francisco, Greg Davies called me and said, look, 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 look. Make sure you're up on your dues with NABIT because you're going to get a card out of this. So okay. I've always had, you know, I've always had these allies and people in my corner, much more so than the meanies. I don't even remember who the meanies are, but I do know that Greg did that. I got my card, but significantly, Chris, I never went on a union call. I didn't, I didn't call the union. I didn't check in with the union. I didn't go. Is, is it out of design or because they, they just weren't, you weren't getting phone calls? I'll tell you exactly why being an electrician working at the opera house or wherever kind of place is dangerous. They didn't want me there and I didn't want to get hurt. Okay. So no, I, I freelanced people like Greg, other people hired me. Um, I did my lighting design, but I did not want to be where I was not wanted and where it was dangerous. Okay. So in that regard, you're quite literally a trailblazer. There was nobody leading the path for you. You didn't have a role model in your area to follow, but you had to rely no. on yourself and a handful of people that were supporting your cause. Yeah, pretty much. 
pretty much there were there were very few women in the San Francisco local and very few black people. They, I think in the Oakland IATSE local, there were two black men and I got to work with them over at the um, Oakland, it was called the Oakland Auditorium at that time. I got to work with them and they, they got union calls from Danny um, and they worked and yeah, the two, there were two of them. And they were in it, they were in it for the art as well. They, they clearly knew that the odds were stacked against them, but they, they wanted to be in it because they loved the industry. They were stagehands. Okay. They were stagehands and they saw me and they, they watched out for me. They watched my back when I go in as a designer, you know, they'd make sure that things were the way they should be, you know, now, and I, I outlived the meanies, you know, I outlived them. Good for you. That's the only way to do it is uh, to show that uh, once you're capable, you just keep doing it. And that's the only way to, sh to that is the that's sweetest right. revenge. That's right. But, you know, it's in the institutions. It's in it's institutionalized. I will say that over my over 40 years of designing, things have gotten better, but not better enough. I mean, with the accelerated pace of everything in our lives these days. You think that the social justice element um, and the redress would also accelerate, but it's been moving slowly. Now people are talking about it. I mean, as though it's something new and we people of color are like, we told you and we told you and we told you and now you've discovered it and now something is going to move. But the question is, is that movement sustainable? You know, uh, who's producing, who's getting Oscars, who's on the stage providing the venue, uh, providing the revenue, mm -hmm. you know, who are the performers? You've got a lot of black performers, superstars, this, this, and that, but who's producing them? Who's working on those crews? Who's designing for them? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that still needs a lot of work. Yeah. We still have a long way to go. People don't like to change until it directly affects them then they're, they're really willing to change quickly. Mm -hmm. But uh, the people who have the processes of power don't want to change until it, it if, especially if it directs their, uh, if it affects their bottom line. I, I believe that's true. And, you know, I've been reading history and things and, you know, this country's wealth uh, comes out of decimating the indigenous folks and enslaving the black folks and nowadays um, belittling and abusing the immigrant folks. And this country has made a lot, a lot, a lot of money, acquired a lot of land, including that uh, uh, treaty, treaty of uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo, you know, where mm -hmm. the United States got a lot of Mexico took 50% of its territory and mm -hmm. on and on the stories go on and on the fact that cotton raised so much revenue, so much money, you know, people, historians. And now, now that things can be known, I mean, I think that with the internet, things can be known, but the question is, are they understood and how do they affect change based on the information being known? it's so hard for a lot of people that I, I have the same conversations and they're like, no, that's not what I learned in school. Like, yeah, it's because what you learned in school was a whitewashed version of reality. True. Uh, you know, the cotton and the sugar wasn't mm -hmm. 
being produced by people who were being paid to do it. It wasn't, it wasn't equality for all then. And no, 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 no. I mean, you know, I will say things have changed in my lifetime, but we need to move along. And I think mm -hmm. things are accelerating. I was very disappointed in the number of people that supported Donald Trump uh, for president. Um, I understand there are fiscal conservatives, there are people who, you know, have Christian beliefs, but this particular president has been so cruel and so just blatantly, blatantly racist, sexist, xenophobic. I was very dis disappointed and I'm a bit frightened by the number of people that supported uh, his cause. Yeah, I thought we were making a lot more progress to allow that to happen. But uh, I, I was blindsided 100%. Well, I mean, we had Obama for eight years and he was elected without controversy. So I thought, and so did Europe and the rest mm -hmm. of the world thought, oh, America's growing up. Yeah, America, we thought so. Right? And then to jump from that to this particular regime, I, 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 I'm, I, I guess I, I should not be astonished. I've been black all of my life. I should not be astonished <laughs> that we flipped from eight years of that to this. But in terms yeah. of the industry, but in terms of the industry, I have another story that I wanted to tell you. Well, two of them. So okay. I was working for a colleague, Stephen Jones. He was um, lighting designer for Harry Belafonte. He's done a lot of work at the Apollo, you know, and he couldn't do a particular uh, gig. So um, I went uh, to Italy and we, we all went on tour. We went to Sicily, we went to Sardinia and in every city, you know, we were an outdoor amphitheater. It was a dance company. Okay. Um, Elio Pomare's dance company. And everywhere we went was so wonderful that, you know, we went, I remember we went to one beach and people were staring at us. I mean, it was like 12 or 15 of us, uh, black people in a place where there was nobody black. And they were looking at us, not with hatred, but with curiosity in terms of what is that? You know, it's like if a, it's like if it's like if a giraffe appeared on my front lawn, or we had a herd of giraffes in, in Berkeley. But it was pure curiosity, you know. And okay. that, that was one instance, and that was on a tour. And then there was another touring one. And I know you're a touring guy, so, guy. So mm -hmm. I tried to remember my touring stories. So there was a, a production called Dance Black America. It started at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And then we toured the United States. Um, I was in the tech uh, van with two guys, two young white guys, and I was the lighting designer. And then all of the performers uh, were, in their, were on their own buses. So me and the two guys would go in advance to set up the, the, you know, to set up the venue, get ready, get the lights set and get ready for the show. So I remember one time I, I fell asleep in the back and, the guys are in the front and we drive through some place or other in the South. And then at the end of the tour, the two guys said, well, you know, you know, Steph, we want to tell you something. I said, well, what is it? What is it, you guys? They said, remember when we drove through wherever it was in the South? He said, yeah. 
and you were asleep in the back? I said, yeah. I said, it was good that you were asleep in the back because what they drove past was a KKK rally. And they didn't tell me until the end of the tour because they said, because then you would have left us and you would have gone home. But if I had not been asleep in the back of the van, we might have had some problems. Wow. And this was in, uh, this had to be the 80s. You're you're not that much older than I am, and we're not that far removed from literal KKK rallies in the public, in public. In the eighties, man. Mean, and, and and the two guys, they were they were young and they were from New York. They didn't know this that kind of history or craziness or hatred, and they just they just kept on driving through because the guys, you know, the KKK hooded guys were looking at them and looking around the van, you know, from outside. And the guys just kept driving. Wow. I've never been on tour and felt like my life was in danger. Uh, well, I didn't know mine was in danger either until they told me at the very, very end. You know, I was good all, at them. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I would have gone home. It's true. I, the, the few people that I've talked to about going through the South, they, they, they share that with you. They're like, Hey, that's just not a safe area for people who look like me. That's, that's right. That's right. I've never, never, never encouraged that. I've never uh, experienced that. I, uh, no, 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 you, you wouldn't, but you know, if you had uh, somebody with you who was black or whatever it was, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's just astonishing to me that that was the eighties. I mean, we had gone through the sixties, the seventies We're so hopeful civil rights and this, this and that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there you have that. There you have that. After all the things that you've gone through to kind of blaze the trail, how are you encouraging more people of color to come into our industry? Well, I mean, it's easier now. When mm-hmm. I I told you about the grumpy, mean white boys in the union. Now I've worked union gigs since then. This new generation of young people and we'll, I'll talk specifically about young white men. The ones that I've run into on the union calls, they're respectful. They love their craft. Um, they'll help me. They teach me new stuff. And, uh, you know, but I live in Northern California. I don't live in Alabama or something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, this new generation around where I am and in the New York area, uh, they're not like they're not like those old media, mean uh, white boys that were there, didn't want you there, would mess you up, you know, the wrong gel, whatever it was. So thanks to you not making mistakes, you're kind of paving the way for other people to, they don't have to excessively prove themselves anymore. They just have to be as good as anybody next to them. No, I don't think that's true. I still, I still think not yet. The fact that, you know, there are still so few lighting designers who are black, who are women, they're still, mm-hmm. it's still a small number. I yeah. mean, there's a black stage designers, Facebook page. And I see more and more people all the time. And my colleague, Kathy Perkins, um, who really, really has written a lot about, about black theater. She created that black stage designers, Facebook page. She's somebody you should really interview because she really, um, 
you know, she's, she really is a pioneer on her coast. And you see that there are more and more folks coming up and we find one another and turn one another on to gigs, protect each other. Here's how you do this in vector works. Here's where you can find this, this and that. So to not be an isolate anymore is truly amazing. I'm glad I've lived long enough to, to not be an isolate, you know, and to, to help other people and to teach and, you know, enjoy my craft and expand it. And theater needs to get caught up. It's been, it's been conversing for five years, maybe longer about inclusion and chattering, chattering, chattering. And now just of the last six months or the last year, I see more action happening in terms of who are the artistic directors, who are the producers, what's on the stage. Now people are like jumping up, you know, in response to the world seeing how bad it is here through the eyes of, uh, through the event of uh, George Floyd. Mm -hmm. That was just so blatant that even the most uh, disinterested white person who's living on their privilege is like, what? And so the theater is following that trend in terms of, oh my God, what can we do? And everybody's issuing statements, but I wanna see how sustainable those statements and those actions are as we go forward. I share that with you. I'm really interested to see how far this goes. So one of the things you brought up that I've, I have seen in my touring, and uh, this has to do mostly with marketing and patriotism. I'd like to, a lot of people in America, especially in the South, like to think that, it, that America is the land of the free and the land of equal rights. But boy, when I travel, I see, so much more inclusivity outside the United States, Europe, uh, mm. South America, uh, everywhere else I go, I see lots of it. And I see lots of diversity. I don't see as much in the United States. Do you, do you see that? I think same? it's true. No, I think it's true. I mean, the last time I was out of the country was when I was in Canada, but I lived in Amsterdam for a while. Okay. Now the Dutch government at that moment, really supported their artists. And um, so I got to do lighting design over there with a, with a black Dutch theater company and some other theater companies. And the government put money toward that. So, you know, the bottom line was not the bottom line. The bottom line was producing good work and being right. supported by the government. That's a very different bottom line. Yeah, that's awesome. At, uh, so at yeah, and I don't know. Momentum. I haven't been back to Europe. Yeah, I haven't okay. been back to Europe, but in a while. But um, yeah, when I when I worked when I worked in Paris, um, you know, there's a there's a long history of African Americans and and the French. Long, long, yeah, uh, complicated, uh, leaning toward the positive side of things in terms of their welcomingness of us. Now, of course, they treat people who are African in a different fashion, but African-Americans, and I don't know if it's World War II or if it's, I, I don't know, I, I, the history doesn't roll off the top of my mind, but we are treated differently in France, in Holland, mm -hmm. in Scandinavia, and uh, it's interesting and troubling. All right. Uh, one of the things I really enjoyed looking over your Wikipedia page is you're not limited 
to lighting. You have used many mediums of art to kind of create emotion. How did you how did you branch out? Well, <clears throat> theater is my is my beloved trade and theater is the place it's like my first language. What happened was I was doing lighting design and this was a period of time when people just started using slide projections. So I started using slide projections in my lighting design and then I went from using them in my lighting design to using them in art installations. That's how, that was my crossover. That was the bridge for me was, you know, uh, slide projections. Then I started okay. doing stuff with mixed media, you know, mi mixed media objects. And that's how I ended up in Wikipedia, I think. I have a, I don't, I'm not certain, but I think I know who put me in there. And I think it was an art, <laughs> I think it was an art curator. I think it was okay. an art curator that put me in there. And uh, that sister wanted to make sure that my name was out there. And it was mainly 90% art stuff when I first saw that Wikipedia entry. And I had to, of course, you know, fancy it up with some, some theater stuff. So All that's right. how I crossed over. That's how I crossed over. All right. So you were fully uh, able to get your message out in many different mediums. And uh, you weren't yes. limited to lighting. You started getting into sculpting, if I recall. Well, what I did was mixed media pieces. Um, I was in the show at Spelman. They had a brand new uh, museum. And I was in that show with a lot of very, very, very well-known African-American uh, women artists. And in that, I did a piece for my father, which ha I used a series of saws. So I, was, I always used lights somewhere in my work. But in this particular piece, it was saws and horseshoes you know, I use common objects. And I also worked in Atlanta and did a projection piece at the cemetery. I went out and interviewed some African-American women. And then I projected newspaper articles, images of the women themselves, and also had them talking in the background and, at the cemetery. And people were like, nobody's going to go see that. Nobody's going to go into the cemetery. But people came and they saw the projection piece and I think it was, I think it was quite a success. I think that was in the eighties as well. Wow. That is uh that's trailblazing right there. Uh, is yeah, that what led to you to start writing and producing? Well, um, what happened was in 2013, I was diagnosed with cancer. And um, since theater is my first language, I remember something came in my head and said, write your way out, write your way out. And so I wrote a play called uh, Every 21 Days, Cancer, Yoga, and Me. Um, and, and I was writing it in real time. I was writing it as I was going through my chemotherapy sessions. And I put everything in there that was going on and remembrances of friends and of my mother and various other people and just, you know, the whole concept of cancer and cancerousness and how do you get on the other side of it. I also critique the yoga industry for being extremely white. It is. It's, a, it's, it's a South Asian, you know, thousands of years art form. And uh, so the, the comedic side of the piece to make it not too heavy because cancer is very, very, very heavy. The comedic mm -hmm. side was me doing yoga and talking about white people and yoga. 
And I think you can find a YouTube. I'll send you the link, Chris. You can see it. But that was okay. that was the funny side. That was the funny side. Was just you know, um, and and I meant what I said about about the the uh, commodification of yoga as a physical exercise rather than part of a spiritual practice and a lifestyle. Yeah, I would imagine that for somebody whose first language is theater, that is how you uh, dealt with with trauma in your life. That's I can exactly only imagine that's how I dealt with. That's exactly how I how I dealt with it, and I and you know, there's nothing like performing at your home court. So I I did um, a benefit here for the Women's Cancer Resource Center in Berkeley, and we had um, sold out standing room only and um, a standing ovation when I did it. And it was a one person show. So that, that meant a lot to me to be doing my trade in my town in service of, you know, an organization that was really important and about a topic that was really, that people don't generally talk about, but it's so pervasive that, you know, people should. How do you like being on the other side of the lights? I prefer to be on our side of the light. Of the me light too. Board. Me too. Because <laughs> the, the way I wrote it, I had slides that would come up. And, you know, and I had um, a young man running the slides for me. And he knew that if I skipped something, he'd have to skip a slide because I had all these images in the background going at the same time. And sometimes I would, you know, I'd just go off script. I'd just go off script. And he'd have to scramble around and find the slides. But, you know, that was fun. And I enjoyed it. And it served its function. But, you know, I prefer being on our side, the design side. So I, uh, the fact that we're still talking, I can only imagine that means you beat cancer? Absolutely. Seven years ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Seven years. Well, I'm really glad you were able to kick that one. That's, uh, that's not a, that's, that's no, <sighs> easy no, 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 not at all. Not at all. And I'm still doing yoga. And, uh, you know, it's very helpful. It's very, very helpful as a spiritual practice. Okay. And you were back, were you still a student? Are you teaching then, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been a professor for, gosh, 25 years, uh, CSU, Cal State University, Monterey Bay. I'm in the art department. We don't even have, now I'm embarrassed to say this, Chris, we don't even have a theater department there. It's called the Visual and Public Art Department, but That's it's not correct. theater. We had a theater department for about three years. Benny Ambush was there. And when he was there, I got to both do theater and work in the art department, you know, teach in the art department. But we don't even have a theater department on the campus. It's so it's so professionally embarrassing <laughs> to me. Right. I mean, what? No theater. What? I would imagine California used to mandate theaters, but now I don't know. I think maybe they've cut all the funding for it. They did. They did. That's unfortunate. But you Uh, know, Chris, they're going to bring it back. They're going to realize that cutting that and cutting the arts was cutting the heart out of uh, education, a liberal arts education. And they're going to bring it back. A lot of people don't realize that in theater, we're not just artsy fartsy we are creating stories we're telling so it's mm-hmm. the most primeval thing that humans do it's what made mm-hmm. us humans the ability to tell stories 
and gossip and, and share Mm -hmm. knowledge. And if you're Mm -hmm. sharing knowledge in a boring way, nobody's going to listen. That's right. If you do it with some spectacle, people are going to pay attention. (laughs) That's right. With some spectacle. If you got, (laughs) if you're telling a story out on a sidewalk, nobody cares. But if you got a slideshow behind you, people are going (laughs) to, they're going to turn their heads. Or some music, or if you're playing some music, something active, you know. Yeah, if you got active. pyro to go to your story, people are <laughs> gonna listen. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, are you finding that the student body is more diverse than ever before, or is it still about the same? When I went to UC Berkeley, was after the dissolution of the affirmative action, you know, mandates and UC Berkeley. I saw less than the two years I was there getting my MFA. I saw fewer and fewer black students. Now I, I know that there are three and four different organizations over there trying to deal with that now. Okay. But you know, that's just, that's just unacceptable at the state university level. We have only a few in Monterey Bay. But uh, we're very organized with the black students there. The uh, Latinx students are very organized and there's crossover. But certainly we could use more. Yeah, we can always use more diversity of opinion in our uh, in, in theater and in education. Yeah, and, and in order to change that, you got to have the bodies. You got to have mm-hmm. the people in place. You got to have black instructors, black designers, uh, designers of color, uh, instructors of color. You gotta really, you know, otherwise the flavor is, is, is not good. There there is no flavor. Mm -hmm. It's the same old, same old, same old. And when I was looking over your stuff, you actually have a lot more insight on this one because basically your PhD is in interdisciplinary studies and, uh, public policy. If I remember. That's, that's correct. I decided to go over to the, uh, to the social science spectrum. I have um, three degrees in the arts. And then I wanted to do, to get a doctorate in something uh, that was a little less on the, on the humanities side. I wanted to go into something that could actually do a different kind of educating, a different kind of world changing. And I think public policy is a really broad area, mm-hmm. but a really important area. You know, and I've been sitting on some commissions and really using that degree because it's uh, important. And the reason I got that degree was that I was exceedingly tired of having these uh, people of European descent with doctorates who thought they were experts on black people. And so even though I had already paid off all my student loans, I went back and got my degree, uh, my doctorate and made a deal with the ancestors. I said, if you get me through this one, I will bring everybody with me thereafter. And I've been mentoring all kinds of folks uh, to get their master's degrees, to get their PhDs, folks of color. Because obviously I know the system very well. And sometimes it just takes somebody looking at you and saying, yes, I see you. Yes, you can do it. And if that person Mm -hmm. looks like you, it's much more meaningful than if it's yes. somebody from a different positioning saying that to you, because they don't know how hard it is for you to be there. Yeah. I'm going to let my liberal stripes fly here, 
but it, no matter how much we encourage one another to, to encourage diversity, it really doesn't make much difference until the public policies align with what we're asking for people to do. I mean, that's the only way to really get right. widespread movement is to align our public policies and convince politicians of, of the cause. That's right. And, inst and just like racism is institutionalized, public policy has the ability to unracialize things. Yes. So I, I think that that's going to be your next degree, uh, Chris, and, and I'm going to mentor <laughs> you. I'm going to mentor you to get your doctorate. In, no, but public policy is really important. When I, the doctoral program that I went to was in a place called the Union Institute and University. And there were, when we started off, there were 25 students and 18 of them were black. And so I made believe that I was at an HBCU, a historically black college mm -hmm. and university, because my class was so black. And it was the first time in all of my university education, which includes three institutions, where I got to see people who looked like me en masse. And most of the black people in that program got on through. We helped each other. We watched out for one another. And not everybody was in public policy, but it was really, I loved it so much. So, so, so Oh, much. that's great. That's very encouraging. Of all the nice things that I can say about Obama, one of the things that I was disappointed about was when he didn't listen to Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones was pushing for public policy and he had actually encouraged Obama to include a secretary of the arts in the U.S. Yeah. cabinet. And that never happened. Well, you know, Chris, he was probably up to his ass in alligators, Obama. <laughs> Not yeah. to mention that, that the assassination attempts, the percentage of that were, were multiple. You know, just the attempts, just the chatter that was being noticed were multiple compared to other presidents. So he was up to his ass in it. But he really, yeah, he should have. And now we're going to just get on Biden and have him have um, a Department of Peace and a Department of the Arts. You know, come on, let's grow up here. Let's grow up. There is so, I think it was Quincy Jones that pointed out, like the, the entertainment and arts industry produces more of the GDP than even agriculture. And the fact yes, that we're, does. the fact that we're ignoring that is, is obscene. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I mean, you and I were on the same page with that. It's time, but you know, well, you, you know, I, I have a day job, so I'm fine. And, and, you know, I don't freelance anymore. But this COVID situation has decimated even Broadway, which we consider to be the pinnacle of success. I mean, if you make it to Broadway and you make it in New York, but it's been decimated. Yeah. What are we if we aren't the American culture? And the American culture is shown through television, through theater, through mm -hmm. music. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. that's what our influence is on the rest of the world. It is our media. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, no Broadway. What? No. Bro I mean, I can't afford to see anything on Broadway, but the fact that it does that it's not existing and then it's dormant. I mean, that's billions of dollars, billions of dollars. Everybody from the, the, the stage hands to the stage door to the floor sweepers to everybody is suffering over there that works the, in the theater. Everybody. Even to the taxi drivers, taking people to the theater, to the 
restaurants, everything. The front desk who is booking hotels for the people coming to New York to do that. That's yep. Yep. I I don't see any way that this isn't gonna be come out in the wash eventually. You're like, oh my God, this is this was terrible. We made some some fairly poor decisions by not encouraging art more. Yeah. And having a place for it so that it had some place to fall when it fell, it had no place to fall except upon itself because we don't have our infrastructures set up to support art and artists. It's just not, it's not set up. And now's the time. I mean, come on new deal. I mean, my dissertation was on the new deal and the public policy um, and come on. We were able to do it in New Deals, save yeah. people from jumping off buildings, artists, photographers, writers. There was a black theater company that was supported, or several that were supported during the New Deal. I mean, come on. It's really time for a new New Deal. Don't let me get off on my New Deal policy uh, <laughs> rant, but it's true. It's time. Now mm -hmm. is the moment. Now it is. Now it is. I. Uh, I will go down that rabbit hole with you. It's it's unfortunate that it has to be called the new New Deal in America because what the New Deal is asking for is already common policy in so many more True. free nations around the world. True. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. We should look at it. You know, I mean, and we should we should look at it as commonplace, not aberrant, to take yeah. care of people. You know, right now it's an aberrant thing and people are called socialists and this, this and that. And, you know, so what? You know, we have socialism now for the wealthy. Come on, come on. Yeah. It's life or death here. Let's, let's, you know, we can do better. We have done better. And let's make that happen right now. We got nothing to lose. We got everything to gain. My blood boils when I hear people call universal health care a far left ideal it, it's that is not a far left ideal that is that's a centrist commonplace in, in the 16 most free nations on earth in history it's yeah. mm -hmm. commonplace even the mm -hmm. conservatives are like yeah we would never get rid of that i know and social yeah. security i mean come on come on yeah really you know, as they say in New York, what are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got a lot to do. Let's let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. We have uh it, it's not as hard as a lot of people like to make it sound. There are we we we're very capable of creating these things and they're all we have to do is talk about them, address them, and actually take action. That's right. And now, and now. Man, this is uh, this has been uplifting. Thank you so much for for being able this to uh, to share these views and uh, and be so open and vulnerable with me. I I really appreciate this. Well, this was really fun, and I tried to you know dig up my touring things because I know you're a touring kind of guy um, to entertain you and you know just to bring some illumination about how hard it was and needn't have been and how hard it might still be in various places. Thank you so much for blazing a trail that other people can just follow right behind you and then uh, and stand on your shoulders to uh, reach even higher. Well, somebody blazed it for me. I blaze it for others. They blaze it for the next. And then we uplift humanity. And, you know, when, what, what does Oprah say? When you know better, you can do better. So now we know better 
and let's see some action on it. I agree. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Thanks Stephanie. Thanks so much. All right. <laughs>